In the name of God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to be speaking today about the, um, about the collect that we have. The collect, uh, that prayer that uh, kind of collects our thoughts and starts us off at the beginning of the service, the collect is telling us to persevere, to persevere, persevere in the confession of faith in Jesus Christ the Lord. And St. Paul is an old man and he sees his death approaching, and he's very concerned for his churches, the churches that he has founded, and he is beseeching his protege, Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. This is my gospel for which I suffer hardship. That's what he said to us last week, and this week he tells Timothy, remember the sound doctrine which you learned, and remember from whom you learned it. And then at the end of the gospel, it says today, when Jesus comes, will he find faith on the earth? I want to talk about perseverance in the faith. I'm going to do it by a roundabout way, so bear with me a little bit. I want to do it by telling a story about the history of this cathedral. Something uh, remarkable happened on Monday, October the 13th in St. Peter's Square in Rome, in front of St. Peter's Basilica, the Roman Catholic Church recognized five new saints. One of them was a brilliant 19th century Englishman, John Henry, who became Cardinal Newman, John Henry Cardinal Newman. Um, if you go to a university and you look for the Roman Catholic ministry at the university, you're very likely to find the Newman Club. Uh, to this day, his books are read. To this day, uh, he's recognized as one of the holiest and most brilliant Christian teachers of recent times. He lived into his 80s. He was born in 1801, and his life spanned the 19th century. He died in uh, 1890. And for about half of the time that he was a minister of the gospel and a, a priest, he was a priest in the Church of England. About halfway through his, his life, he converted to the church in Rome. But uh, uh, he did a powerful work while he was a priest in the Church of England. It's wonderful that the Roman Catholics have recognized his sanctity and his brilliance. He's long been recognized in the Anglican Communion. The Church of England has a feast day for John Henry Newman on August the 11th, and the Episcopal Church has a feast day for John Henry Newman on uh, February 21. And he is a figure in the history of this cathedral. We are beneficiaries as we sit here today for the, of the ministry of John Henry Newman, and particularly of his Anglican ministry. So a little bit about his, his story. Uh, he was brilliant. He was one of the most brilliant people of his time. He went to Oxford and uh, studied classics, among other things. And when he graduated, he was given the highest honor that a graduate of Oxford University could be given. At a very young age, he was made a fellow of Oriel College. 
He was ordained to be a priest in the Church of England. He was an Anglican priest. In his early ministry, he was very associated with the evangelical movement in the Church of England. In the Church of England at his time, there was a lot of lukewarmness, and the evangelicals were noted for their emphasis on the priority of the Holy Scriptures, their focus on the problem of sin, and their focus on Jesus Christ as the answer to sin, and their emphasis on the need for personal conversion and for heartfelt religion. And that, all of those ideas influenced uh, John Henry Newman in his early ministry as a priest in the Church of England. Now, he never lost those commitments all the way through to the end of his life as a Roman Catholic cardinal. He never lost those commitments. But there was another strain of uh, theology and churchmanship in the Church of England. It was called the High Church Movement. And Oxford was the center of the High Church Movement. And Newman came under the influence of two other Oxford dons who were leaders in the high church movement. One was the professor of poetry, also a priest, John Henry Newman, uh, uh, professor of poetry and also a priest, John Keeble. John Keeble wrote what was probably the first bestseller in English history. His book, his book of poems, The Christian Year, it was, a, it was a poem for every day of the Christian year. His book of poems, The Christian Year, went into, I think, something like 40 editions. He was also brilliant. He was also a, a, a fellow of Oriel College. And the professor of Hebrew was a man named Edward Bouvier, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I hope I am, Edward Bouvier Pusey. Pusey was a brilliant linguist and professor of Old Testament in the Hebrew language. These three men formed an alliance. They read the scriptures together. They read the church fathers, that is, the ancient teachers of the first five centuries of the Christian church. They read the, the scriptures and the church fathers, and they read the brilliant shining stars of English divinity. People like Richard Hooker, like John Donne, like George Herbert, like Lancelot Andrews, who inspired the poet T.S. Eliot. And they became convinced that God was calling them to recall the English church to its Catholic and patristic inheritance. What was it that the high church party believed in? They believed everything that the evangelicals believed, but they believed that the church was not just an association of believers. They believed that it was the body of Christ continuous in time with the Church of the Apostles. And they believed that Christ was a living presence in His body, being communicated by the Holy Spirit through the words of the Scripture and through the real presence of Christ in the sacraments, particularly the sacrament of the altar. They had an emphasis on the bishops and the priests and the deacons, not as they were often seen in English society as that day as kind of minor state officials who were in charge of the morality of the people, but they saw them as the successors of the apostles. And they thought that their standard of learning and standard, standard of holiness of life had to be of the highest because they had to, with authenticity and authority, call the English people to holy living. And they became convinced that God was calling them to ignite a Catholic revival in the Church of England and they became known as 
the Oxford movement. Now, they wanted to promulgate these teachings. The church is the body of Christ, the Eucharist as conveying the real presence of Christ, the centrality of the scriptures, the power of Christ to save, um, and the, the bishops and the clergy as successors of the apostles. They wanted to communicate these ideas, and they borrowed a technique that they learned from an American bishop. There was this bishop, this American bishop. He went to Oxford to raise money because he was planting churches all up and down the Hudson Valley. His name was John Henry Hobart. And Hobart was also a high churchman, and he taught his people about the meaning of baptism, the meaning of the Holy Eucharist, about the, about the inspiration of the Scriptures, about uh, the meaning of bishops, priests, and deacons, and about the call to holy life. And he did this through writing tracts. And so Newman and Pusey and, and um, Keeble, they began to write tracts. They were called the Tracts for the Times. There were 90 of them. Newman wrote most of them. They were on things like baptism, Eucharist, the meaning of the church, the meaning of the ministry, how to prepare for communion, how to live a holy life, how to pray. Newman wrote most of them. Now, this is where this story and our story begin to intersect. So this building that we're standing in is the life work and singular vision of the first bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Albany. His name was William Croswell Doane. His grave is behind, is, is, is behind the high altar, in the ambulatory behind the high altar. Doane's father was a bishop. His father's name was George Washington Doane. He was the bishop of New Jersey. George Washington Doane was a tractarian. Ultimately, they'd be called Anglo-Catholics, but at this stage of the game, they're called Tractarians. And the story about George Washington Doan is that he would stand on the dock in New York City waiting for the mailboat to come from England with the latest edition of the Tracts of the Time. Now, William Croswell Doan, the first bishop of this diocese, the man with the vision for this great cathedral, he grew, this is the ethos that he grew up in. This is the atmosphere that he absorbed. When he came to build this cathedral, his vision was that this would be a Tractarian, Oxford Movement, Anglo-Catholic flagship. That the same thing that the Oxford Fathers were doing in England, he would do in this country, which is recall people to the understanding of the church as the body of Christ. Recall them to the real presence of Christ in the word and sacraments of the church. Recall the clergy to holy living and lives of prayer so that they could call the people to holy living and lives of prayer. Now, George Washington Doan had a friend. Our Bishop Doan's father, he had a friend. It was his best friend. It was a man named William Croswell, a priest in the Episcopal Church. The Oxford Movement was very successful in England. It was more successful in this country. It has massively influenced the ethos of the Episcopal Church, and it particularly was influential in New York. But the first Oxford Movement Church that was built in this country and was very radical because it had no pew rents, it had free pews, was the Church of the Advent in Boston. The first rector of the Church of the Advent, where I'm going to go in a couple of weeks for a conference on Anglo-Catholic roots. The first rector of the Church of the Advent, his name was Father William Croswell. So William Croswell, 
was the godfather and the mentor of our first bishop. So that heritage of Newman, that heritage of Newman uh, is our heritage. Now, ultimately, Newman became very discouraged with the Church of England, and he converted. After about 20 years of ministry as a uh, uh, priest in the Church of England, and even though the Oxford movement was growing, nonetheless, he got very discouraged, and he converted to the Church of Rome. He got a chilly reception when he first went there, but ultimately a new pope came along, recognized his sanctity, and recognized his brilliance, um, and, and made him a cardinal. Now, when you get made a cardinal, somebody comes from the pope with a letter. The letter has a name. It's called a bigoletto. Bigoletto is Italian for a ticket. It's your ticket to be a cardinal. And it is a tradition that when you get the bigoletto, you make a bigoletto speech. And so Newman was in Rome. He got the bigoletto. He's in his 80s. He gives a, big, a bigoletto speech. And he starts out by saying this, throughout my ministry for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, so he's referring to the time when he was an Anglican, throughout my ministry, one principle has guided me. So there's one, there's one big idea that ties all of his ministry together. And now, listen to this carefully because uh, it's, 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 there's terminology here that we have to, have to be careful about. He says, the one principle that has united his ministry from first to last, from the time he was a young priest in Oxford to the time he was a Roman Catholic cardinal, the one ministry that is tied, the one principle that has tied his ministry together is opposition to what he calls liberalism in religion. Now, he's not meaning it politically. He would have been in favor of many causes that we would regard today as liberal causes. The way the word was used in the 19th century is entirely different, but he tells us exactly what he means by liberalism in religion in his Bigoletto speech. He said the idea, the idea that there is no objective truth in religion, the idea that one creed is as good as another creed, the idea that religion is a matter of sentiment and taste, nothing objective, no fact, nothing miraculous, and a person is free to make of it what he wants. He has resisted this his whole life. Why? Well, this principle which we are so used to, which sounds like tolerance but really is arch intolerance because it dismisses any claim of truth before it's investigated. We're very used to this, but he perceived that this principle would eat away at the root of Christian conviction. Uh, many of us mourn that our children do not profess the Christian faith. It is because this principle is in the drinking water. It's one of the reasons for it. He resisted this principle because uh, it makes politics impossible. It, it favors the powerful because if there is no truth with a capital T, then to what standard can we hold the powerful accountable? He resisted it his whole life. His whole life he taught the real presence, the real and saving reality of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen from the dead, active and alive in his church by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word and the sacrament 
raising his people from the death of sin to the life eternal. That's our heritage. Week by week, it is my challenge to remind us of the saving doctrine that we have from the apostles and from the Lord himself. But every once in a while, it is worthwhile to stop and remember from whom we have this teaching. We have it from the Lord. We have it from the apostles. We have it from the faithful church fathers that were so beloved by the Oxford movement and the Tractarians. We have it from great teachers recognized by the whole breadth of the church, teachers like John Henry Newman. And in our own place, we have it from Bishop Doan. Let us persevere. Let us hold fast that the Lord may find faith on the earth when he returns. Amen.